Hello, and welcome to the Culturist Podcast from Flipboard. In each episode, we'll go behind the scenes and nerd out on one thing blowing up in our culture right now. Today, it's all about Stephen King, his Pet Cemetery reboot, and the cultural resurgence he's having as a new generation uncovers and remakes his work. Let's listen in to this warm conversation between the culturist curator, Mia Q, and a journalist whose life has literally been transformed by King's stories. My name is Anthony Bresnikan. I am a uh, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. I've been a, a journalist now for more than 20 years, and I got into writing as a kid because no one would take me to see the Pet Cemetery movie in 1989. <laughs> and, my gra- and, my, and my grandmother, uh, who was always encouraging me to read and, and study and, and work hard, she said, you know, that's, that's actually a book. Uh, a guy named Stephen King wrote this. How about if I buy you the book? And I could not have been more disappointed. Not only did I not get to see the movie, but now I had homework. I had to read <laughs> a book. But she bought me that book, that paperback at Kmart, and uh, I started reading it. And I loved it. I became everything about the trailer for the movie that made me want to see it was uh, was even uh, more evocative and terrifying in the book. This idea of of finding ruins and old graves in the woods, and then a resurrection ground even beyond that, and an old man who knows stories he shouldn't tell, and kids who uh, are a little too curious and play in the road. All of that hit home with me, and uh, to this day, I still look back and say, I'm not sure I would be writing if I hadn't read Pet Cemetery because it made me want to write my own little ghost stories and monster stories. And uh, that started me down the path that ended here. Now I tell the story of other storytellers. That's incredible. I, I know you've met Stephen King several times. Have you been able to tell him that story? I have never met Stephen oh, King. I um, interviewed him a few in, times. <laughs> <laughs> in my work, I've met a lot of really interesting, creative, and famous people. He is probably... Uh, my favorite. He means a lot to me as an artist, and he's one of the few I've never met in person. Although I've interviewed him uh, probably a, a more than a dozen times, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so I feel like I've, I've met him in that way. I, I, and my wife and my kids always tease me because, uh, uh, you know, one of the people you look up to the most is the one you haven't gotten to meet. But uh, but I've had so many great conversations with uh, with Steve, as he calls himself. <laughs> that. Uh, that I uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything, you know. I wouldn't cha- trade it for a selfie. I get to sit and talk to him for a, you know, uh, for a long, long time about Pet Cemetery and about it and about his new books. So uh, he's always a great person, great conversation. So uh, I, I'm uh, I'm very lucky, even though we we haven't met in person. Your most recent piece for Entertainment Weekly called Pet Cemetery: Stephen King's Most Disturbing Story. There's a lot of disturbing stories, so what makes this one particularly upsetting? Uh, he seems to think it's especially upsetting himself. You know, he told me that he listened to it again on audiobook because it's been about 40 years since he wrote it. Uh, it. You know, it was one he sat on for a number of years. He, as he says, he put it in his drawer and thought it was a little too creepy, a little too disturbing, just crossed too many lines to publish. And, uh, you know, th- at that stage early in his career, he might have been right about that. It might have turned people off. But then he had to get out of a uh, an onerous book contract in the mid-80s. And so, you know, hey, he had this thing in the shelf. He pulled that out. 
paid off his debt to Doubleday in terms of books that he owed them and uh, and then got out of that contract. But uh, the book then was unleashed on the world. And I think what makes it such a powerful book, and it's interesting because it's often people's first book. It's either it or um, Pet Cemetery that people, especially from my generation, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, first started reading. And I think that's because it's a little, it's a slimmer book, you know, it's like a third of the length of it. So if you're daunted, if you're, you know, 12, 13 years old and and you're going to pick up a book like Pet Cemetery seems a little less uh, th- scary, at least in terms of commitment. <laughs> and uh, yet it's his, I do believe it's his darkest book. And he's done a lot of deep, dark things to a lot of characters in his novels. Uh, but I think the grief, the fear of losing uh, a pet, I mean, like losing your cat or dog or your pet bird, like is devastating enough. But then the the, the loss of a child. And the loss of a parent is, um, which is also sort of like a surrogate, there's like the surrogate fatherhood thing going on in Pet Cemetery from the very first page. Lewis Creed, the, the young doctor, uh, befriends this old man who becomes like like his dad in a lot of ways. And he, and certainly uh, that character, Judd Crandall, reminded me of my own grandfather when I read it uh, as a young kid. And I just think all of those things, the fear of losing the things you love, the pets, the people, the children, it freights Pet Cemetery with uh, a kind of crushing grief that makes the scary parts, the graveyard, the resurrection ground, people coming back from the dead, even more scary because it, I, I think it breaks you first. It breaks you before you get to the scary parts because it breaks your heart. And with all those cracks in your heart, a lot of creepy crawly things can slip in. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was first made as a film in 1989. How was it received then? Uh, it was a big hit in 1989. Uh, one of the biggest hits to come from his books. And there'd been a number of them, you know, obviously like The Shining, Stanley Kubrick film, uh, David Cronenberg made The Dead Zone. Uh, you had a whole... Uh, slew of them in the early 80s, in, including like original uh, original screenplays that he wrote himself, like Cat's Eye, which is like a collection of his short stories. Christine by John Carpenter. So there was this wave of Stephen King films, uh, you know, not to mention the first one, Carrie by Brian De Palma. Uh, and then it tapered off a little bit in the mid 80s. And Pet Cemetery really brought it back, made people look at his work and say, wow, maybe there's uh, there's something to be found here. I don't know that critics loved it. You know, it's a it's a horror film, and it, it takes a lot for a horror film to uh, to earn respect. I think it's a little, maybe not easier now, but critics are a little more open minded to it. Uh, but I think there's heart and depth to Pet Cemetery. I think there is heart and depth to the movie from '89. Uh, but there's also a lot of like you know, gross out, scary stuff in it that's just meant to thrill you as well. And um, so it, it earned a lot of respect from moviegoers, and it made a lot of money at the box office, and it launched a whole wave of Stephen King adaptations, much the way the new version of It has done uh, today. Right. I want to get to It a little bit later, but um, first I wanted to ask, why is Pet Cemetery ripe for a reboot? And kind of as an aside, like, what's up with all these reboots, you know, anyway, is, is Hollywood running out of material? Uh, Hollywood's always running out of material. <laughs> like, uh, as he told me himself in our conversation, it's a 
it's a he's in a seller's market for uh, for stories. You know, you have so many platforms now, from the streaming platforms, cable networks, the movies. Uh, they're hungry for product, especially recognizable stories. So you know, you want to reboot something. Hey, maybe these Stephen King stories could be done a little bit better. I mean, he was very dismissive in the way he said it. He he told me, and I don't know if I can say this on your show, but maybe you could bleep it. He goes, uh, you know, I think people saw it, the new new version of it, and they realized there's gold in some of that old shit. (laughs) 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 I think he's right. I mean, I wouldn't call it old shit. I love those books. And I think what he does is more than scare people. I think he... Uh, he tells powerful, profound stories, but he wraps them up in exciting, thrilling, supernatural tales, uh, kind of like Rod Serling did with The Twilight Zone. And so, um, you know, you look back and say, what was done so well that we shouldn't touch it? And what could be done, again, in a way that's at least different? And I think Pet Cemetery is ripe for a reboot because it's been 30 years since that movie came out. And I think that movie holds up, but there's a different take that um, Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmer took with this new version. They changed the plot slightly, which doesn't alter the story all that much, but it allows the, the, the third act of the movie to explore some things that the book did, but the, but the 89 movie could not because you couldn't have a toddler really perform some of the more introspective parts of what the undead child has to think about or do when he or, in this case, she comes back. So does that kind of account, um, without spoiling the plot, uh, there is a pretty big difference in the reboot. Um, is what you just described kind of account for that big change, if, if we're even able to talk about this without ruining anything? Well, the, this was a big debate uh, among the filmmakers and the studio was whether to reveal which child dies. Like, this is, this is just the basic plot of the movie, right? A child dies, and the grieving parents have the, the ability to bring that kid back. Um, and everybody knows what happens in the movie and in the book, but they change and I guess this is where we get into spoiler territory, but the trailer itself reveals, you know, a trailer from months ago reveals that uh, that they changed that which child from this two-child family dies. And the reason they did that was that allowing the older kid to be the one who comes back, it, it doesn't change the grief the parents feel. It doesn't change the horror of losing a kid or the the magnetism of being able to bring them back, even if it's not, if they don't come back the same. Um, But it does allow the performer to have maybe some more quiet scenes with the parent when she she comes back and uh, actually like question why she's here and struggle with this hunger to kill or, or make more undead that she brings with her. And you just can't do that with a, a kid. Like there's a there's a part of this power that brings things back that messes with people too before it kills them. That's a big part of what's how Stephen King scares people. You know, Pennywise, the dancing clown, doesn't just kill you. He tortures you. Like he breaks your mind first. And that's the part that makes, I think, some of Stephen King's villains and monsters a little scarier than like Jason from Friday the 13th because Jason's just going to hack you up and then you're done. <laughs> But um, the beings in Pet Cemetery, they, they're going to feed on your soul a little bit, too. And that's what makes, I think, his books 
dig a little deeper, so to speak. You know, you run into pun territory with some of these, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. some of these, uh, <laughs> you know, phrases. But um, but uh, it's true. It's what it's why it touches you a little deeper and scares you a little more because it's the these things come back and they make you face real fears, real fears, not just supernatural fears. Do you think that pet cemetery will will dethrone it in like our pop cultural consciousness this year? Um that's that'll be interesting to see. That's a heavy lift, you know, because Pennywise is so iconic, right? And it's funny to look back at like the hardcover, the original hardcover for it because it shows the little boat sailing down, like these things that have now become like iconic in our culture as much as Frankenstein rising up off the table, right? This the the paper boat going down the uh, the rainy street corner and uh, into the into the sewer and Pennywise being in that grate, just the weirdness of seeing a clown in a grate in a sewer. And on the cover of the original hardback, it's not a clown; it's this little green claw, right? It's just an it, a creature, a thing. And now the clown and the balloon have become so indelible in our collective memories that even people who've never seen it or don't know anything about it, they know Pennywise and they know it's about this supernatural clown that feeds on fear. Like Pennywise is is as iconic today as Dracula, as Frankenstein, as the mummy. Um, So that's going to be hard to dethrone. I mean, in terms of box office, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not great at making predictions like that. You never can tell, but I do think it's up there. And I definitely think Pet Cemetery has a place in people's um, in, play, in people's hearts in a similar way because it doesn't just scare you; it's it moves you too. I love that. Um, and with Hulu's Castle Rock, you know, we definitely, you know, would it be fair to say we're in the middle of a Stephen King Renaissance? And have you been surprised about how the, the this generation has received him? I think we really are. Because it's almost like Bob Dylan, you know, is that every high school kid has a moment where they discover the classics, right? <laughs> and uh, it happened when I was young. You know, I was like the second generation to fall for Stephen King. Uh, I was, you know, born in the mid-70s, so I came of age in the late 80s, early 90s, and that's when I started reading his books. But there was there were kids my age, you know, 15 years before who were doing the same thing when they were new, right? When they were brand new books. And I feel like the same thing's happening now. Only the people who grew up reading his books are now telling those stories as opposed to other adults who now have to figure out all like, well, do I want to tell, how do I turn this, uh, you know, this, this book into a movie. It's like kids who've already imagined their own movies, having read the books are now taking a crack. That's what JJ Abrams is doing with, uh, and Sam Shaw with, uh, with the Castle Rock series, they're kind of imagining their own tale. They're doing what kids used to do with Star Wars figures. You know, you see the movie, then you go home and make up your own story. And they're doing that with Castle Rock. Like, here are his players, here are his characters, here are his settings. And now let's tell our own story in Stephen King's universe. But, you know, the list is really long. There's Do- Dr. Sleep, which is a sequel to The Shining that he wrote um, back in uh, 2014. That's being adapted by Mike Flanagan, who made The Haunting of Hill House, and also Gerald's Game, another Stephen King adaptation, a great adaptation of what was long considered an unfilmable book. 
Uh, he did that for Netflix, uh, I think about a, a little over a year ago. Um, and now he's doing Dr. Sleep. And uh, then you have It Chapter 2, the second half of that story coming. Uh, they were developing a new version of the Tommyknockers, which is not considered one of King's greatest books. It's often regarded as a misfire from him. But one I think has a lot of power in it. It's just, yeah, it's a it's a clunky book. It goes in a lot of different directions. It's a, it's a great book. If I would love to see him actually pull a little bit of a George Lucas and re-edit that book. <laughs> you know, take some things out, tighten it up a little, because mm -hmm. there's a great story there, uh, an alien invasion story that's actually very fresh and very different from other stories like that. So that's in the works. Uh, and that's the kind of thing a movie, a new, you know, that was done as a TV movie that wasn't all that great. Um, but a new movie could actually streamline that story. And as he says, take the gold out of that old shit. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, the, you know, the list, uh, the list goes on quite a bit. They're, uh, always looking at new, new things to explore. And I think if Pet Cemetery is a big hit, uh, that's just going to ramp it up even more. And how about his influence on this latest generation of horror filmmakers? Like, I haven't seen Us, but, you know, when you watch Jordan Peele, um, do, you, do you kind of see any influences from King um, in their work? You know, here's what I see in Jordan Peele. I don't see, uh, this, I don't see like, that Jordan Peele is telling Stephen King-style stories, except that Stephen King told Stephen King stories, right? Like stories that were set in Maine, stories that were set on, uh, in little towns that he lived in, you know, Pet Cemetery was based on a, a college town where he lived and there was a, a real little graveyard in the woods. And, um, he took things from his life that mattered to him and turned them into scary stories. And I think Jordan Peele does the same thing. Like I think similar technique, like a similar liberty to explore, your reality, your imagination. So, so you know, Jordan Peele takes his experience, you know, with um, uh, with white privilege and with how white people treat people of color, especially when they're trying to curry favor with them, and like turns that into horror. And I think brilliant, right? Because he's taking his own personal experience and t and turning that into horror, not trying to imagine something that's. Uh, completely fantastical. He takes what's real, what's right in front of you and makes it and adds a little bit of fantasy to it. Uh, but that's the, that's the flavoring. That's not the foundation of it. So I don't know how much Stephen King influenced Jordan Peele, but in that way, I think they're working, uh, from the same background is that he doesn't have to imagine, you know, mist shrouded castles in Transylvania He's telling a story about what it's like to grow up or what it's like to have a family or what it's like to question your own identity. What's something about Stephen King that you wish more people knew? Um, how kind he is. Uh, he does not talk about it. And I think that's a testament to his own uh, humility. You know, he doesn't brag about this sort of thing. But he's a very generous person. He, um, generous in terms of, look, he's a very wealthy man. And he also knows what it's like to be not wealthy. He's the son of a single mom who worked at a laundry. He himself lived in a trailer and wrote a lot of those early books in the back of a trailer uh, and used a lot of money from those short stories to pay for, you know, ear medicine for his kids. And then he hit it big. And I think... It's fair to say 
he has not forgotten what it's like to be a blue collar guy. You know, like the, the, the director of the original Pet Cemetery, Mary Lambert, tells a story about like she met up with him to basically apply for the job. He had approval over director for that movie. And, uh, you know, they didn't meet at some fancy restaurant often out here in Hollywood. It's like, you know, who gets the power table, right? Who can get the, who can get a seat at the busiest time in the fanciest, uh, most exclusive restaurant. He met her and he said, let's go to Denny's. I like their burgers. <laughs> so like, that's not a sign of his kindness, but I think it's a sign of his regular Jonas, you know, like his, his sort of, uh, I don't, I think he, he's still a blue collar guy, even though he's, you know, an artist, a writer, a storyteller. And the stories of his kindness are just endless. Uh, I have uh, friends and family who live in Maine and, you know, he built a baseball diamond for the Little League and he didn't name it Stephen King Field. He named it after, uh, I believe it was the child of, of a, a coach who, whose son had died. You know, so he doesn't name things after himself. He doesn't ask for that attention, just quietly is very generous and kind. And you hear stories from other writers, people like Paul Tremblay uh, wrote a couple of great books called The Disappearance of Devil's Rock and A Head Full of Ghosts. Like one day Stephen King tweeted about how much he liked his books and, uh, you know, it really, <laughs> really helped sales or, or uh, Carolyn Kepnes who wrote uh, Us. And hidden bodies, you know the uh, uh, the Us series now is a popular one on on Netflix. I think it was on Lifetime originally, but her books uh, got a nice boost from uh, the Stephen King shout out on Twitter. And uh, you know, personally speaking, I wrote a novel a few years ago, and and Steve said kind things about it. And he, you know, I got and I sent him a message and said, you know, your the things you that that paragraph you gave me to to put on my book. Uh, I get. I see so many like Amazon reviews and Goodread reviews saying I picked this up because Stephen King recommended it, and um, thank you for that. You know, your name. I have no name, but you're good. You lent me your good name, and and you really helped. And he didn't have to do that. He didn't owe me anything. Uh, um, and uh, and I also told him, you know, there are a couple people out there who say you owe them twenty five bucks. So sorry about that. <laughs> and he, he said, oh, you know, there's a troll in every hole, but but it's it's that kind of kindness. He helps. A lot of writers who are uh, trying to climb that ladder too, and a guy like him doesn't have to, you know. A lot of people in his position actually might not want that. Um, and I, I so you know, what do I wish more people knew about Stephen King? That the scariest man on the planet is also one of the nicest. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's funny because to set up that Pet Cemetery interview, this I don't know if this will be useful to you for the show, but, you know, I emailed his publisher and said, I'd like to do this conversation where we talk about the book and the, the old movie and the new movie. And she emailed his, you know, his various managers and editors and, uh, and uh, movie rights agents and the studio. And there were about 10, 15 people involved in these emails ping-ponging back and forth about whether he would do it. Sure, that he like, you know, okay, maybe he, we think he, he's interested in this. And then, uh, so that was like over the course of a Thursday and a Friday. And then Saturday, around uh, 7 a.m., I get this call, and it's an unfamiliar number. And I, and I answer it, I'm like thinking it's a sales call, or I don't know. It's Stephen King. And he's like, hey, 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 I saw, I saw you were trying to set up an interview. 
I figured I'd just call you, cut out the middleman. When do you want to do it? And he's like, I hear you want to talk about, I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. He's singing the old Ramones song. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Who is this? Oh, Stephen King. And then I'm like, wait, did we schedule this? I'm supposed to like, be prepared right now. <laughs> but uh, but that's what I mean. He just cuts through and says, hey, you want to do this? Let's let's do it. And um, really just a decent guy. I like him a lot. Maybe I'll get to meet him someday. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, what do you know about his new book, The Institute? I know it sounds really promising, and it sounds a little bit like a, 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 a kind of a, a classic Stephen King thing. He's been experimenting the last few years, you know, with uh, like crime thrillers. He had the whole Mr. Mercedes trilogy, and um, and then he wrote a book with his son Owen uh, called Sleeping Beauties, which was terrific. And uh, and then he wrote like this sort of lighthearted, almost a comedy called Elevation. And, um, and then he, he paired up with uh, Richard Chismar, the cemetery dance publisher, to, to write a novella called Gwendy's Button Box. And each of these things is very, you know, like he, he's still, he's in his 70s now, he's still experimenting, right? But the Institute sounds like, um, like, let's go play one of the hits, you know, like, it's the story of kids. He's great at telling stories about kids from it to Pet Cemetery, to Firestarter, to The Shining, to Cujo. Like, this is a story about kids who have powerful abilities, telekinesis, uh, pyrokinesis, all these things that he's written about for years, right, with Carrie, The Shining. And uh, it's sort of like dark Hogwarts where you get taken to this place, this institute, and your abilities studied and harnessed, only you don't want to go here. You know, you don't hope to get that message. In fact, I think... Your family gets wiped out and you just disappear. And so it's a story of kids who have these powers who are, you know, trapped at this institute. And I think it sounds like classic Stephen King. Thanks for listening. Check out the Culturist Collection on Flipboard for recommendations of what you should read, watch, and listen to every week. You can find it on Flipboard by searching for The Culturist or by typing flip.it forward slash the culturist into your browser. Until next time, stay creative and current, friends, and don't sleep with the lights off.